It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buff. And um, spring in the Hudson Valley. We are finally back to spring in the Hudson Valley. We are. It, it came, it went, it came back. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is it, it, it'll come back. It comes yep. back, right? Yes, exactly. There's such an extraordinary feeling of, um, I almost have a sense of entitlement to the weather <laughs> when it comes around <laughs> right. in spring because you think, well... I suffered through winter, and we didn't have a tough winter up here. Not at all. This winter. No. You know, and um, we've had some extraordinarily warm days, and I had a, a occasion to do a, a fairly uh, uh, long, longish car ride earlier this week um, up through the beautiful Mohawk Valley, and it was an amazing day. And I got out of my car, and I thought, this would be great if if only the bison weren't um, uh, weren't losing weight because of climate change. Right. And, yeah. and that's the thing <laughs> right. is there's always some weird long connection that you don't think about. Yeah, no, you know? exactly. And it, it's fun, too, because when spring comes, it feels like, uh, you know, the birds are a little friendlier. They'll hang around a little closer and all the little chipmunks and things haven't learned to run as fast away <laughs> from you. And so you get this real sense of of nature, essentially coming to life and and being able to really appreciate that and and be inside of it especially up here where we'd see nature all around us but you're right then there are these little reminders that things are uh, changing certainly the mild winter was a strange one yeah um and uh yeah yeah you wonder where this is all going and how quickly things are going to change yeah and they have at, you know they, there are consequences to it so while i'm enjoying this beautiful <laughs> weather the grass out in the grasslands in in the in the plain states is not um, as nutritious nutritious as it was because of the shorter seasons. Right. And so the pi- the bison are now averaging 500 pounds less than they were 150 years ago. <laughs> you know? And what and, does and you that think, mean? And you yeah. think... I yeah. just uh, that yeah. you ha- we have no idea of the ramifications of the changes that are coming. Yeah, no, that that is absolutely true. And our guest this week uh, has seen some of those things firsthand, which is what's so wonderful. Yeah, we can talk about it. We can sit in this little studio here and 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 talk to people who are on the ground doing things. But but uh, Sarah Van Gelder, who is our guest, and she is the co-founder and editor at large of Yes Magazine. Uh, and by the way, Yes Magazine has an exclamation point after it and uh, it's for good reason because there is a magazine out there that is telling you uh, how to uh, think about things maybe a little differently or maybe the different thoughts you're thinking might not be so crazy because there's people in the magazine telling you no this is right you're right Uh, you know go that direction yes exactly (laughs) go that direction Uh, and Sarah has just finished what I think I think it's a 12,000 mile trip around the country and I was excited to talk to her I think we both were because again this is someone who has done it uh, you know when you really talk to people in uh, anywhere in any field you get a sense of something that you can't get any other way and so for Sarah to take this on uh, and she's in the process now of writing a book about it uh, I think is um, uh, awesome <laughs> That's, we use that word somewhat freely around uh, these days but but in this case it's true for her to, to get out from behind the desk get in her car and find out what's really going on is tremendous so we're going to have a great conversation with her Hi, this is Sarah. 
Hello, Sarah. It's Peter Buffett. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. It feels like I know you, even though I don't think we've actually met. I know. Isn't that wild? I, I was thinking that, too. We, um, well, we're certainly like-minded, <laughs> and, yeah. and we have a lot of friends in common. And I don't know how much you heard already about the show. It's called What's Next. And we just basically talk about what hopefully uh, is around the corner, what people see, what people are doing. And uh, you, since you've been around so many corners lately <laughs> with your uh-huh. road trip, you've been on the ground. And we talk to some people that are either feeling the effects of various things going on, uh, are trying to do something about it, uh, are from the academic world, from the activist world. Uh, but I don't think anybody knows better about anything than someone who's on the ground talking to real people. I know from my own experience with the foundation work, uh, I used to say, uh, you don't know if you don't go. You know, it, mm-hmm. if you're not there speaking with people, uh, you're theorizing on, on some level. So with all that uh, and with your, again, like-mindedness, because on your site it talks about your topics are cooperative economics, local food, solving the climate challenge, alternatives to prisons, inclusive communities, (laughs) and uh, all the things we talk about on the show. So what are you seeing out there? What are your feelings? Let's just start talking about some of the things you've experienced out on the road. Yes, I left in August. I left the Seattle area where I live in August, and I spent the next four and a half months on the road. I covered about 12,000 miles. I visited Indian reservations and Rust Belt cities, and I went to Appalachia, I went to the south. So I went to the places that I don't normally get to go to because they're sort of out of the way of the normal, you know, airplane routes and, and right. conferences and so forth. And uh, and I, I wanted to find out, you know, as you were just saying, what what's actually happening on the ground? What are people experiencing? But but the biggest question for me is always, you know, is, is change happening? Are we finding our way to the kind of a society that can actually sustain human life and the natural world and so forth into the future? You know, to what degree are we stuck and to what degree is there a creative process happening at the local level? Right. So that was the question I had. So that meant that I was really seeking out in those places at the edge of society what people are actually doing. And, uh, you know, I, we, I've, I've just, just finished the first draft of a book on that topic, and there's lots of, lots of things that, as I thought it over, that, um, that I found really interesting and really inspiring, and some that I found quite surprising. But I think the main, my main takeaway is that, that even though I get somewhat discouraged about how things are happening at the national level, at the local level, there's, there's such amazing creativity. And, People don't get so stuck by the polarization between right and left. That's that's far less interesting and important to people. I think they're much more interested in very pragmatic questions about how how to live, how to how to create livelihoods, how to sustain the natural world around them, and, and those questions just evoke a lot more collective action, a lot more um, really productive kinds of work than the kind of stale conversation that so often happens at the national level. 
Yeah, I, when you talk about uh, you know communities on the edge, I love the idea that if you're not on the edge, you're taking up too much room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the people that are really and, and the fact that all the real action happens at the edge. You know, the idea of even uh, changing states from uh, liquid to solid or liquid to gas. You know, the the states are one thing, but where the change is is where all the action is and. And it does happen, it would always appear to be, um, in community, in real relation, uh, when people actually look at each other and uh, pitch in on something together and realize that there is this common unity uh, in community. And and, uh, so one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is scale. And the questioning really, and it it maybe sounds treasonous or something, but the question of the scale of the country itself and whether it's just uh, too big and and gets into abstractions too easily when, in fact, everything really is happening at the community level. What do you think about that? Uh, I think it's a really interesting question, and and it was so striking to me how how very diverse our country is once you get off of you know the freeways with the same right. the same big box stores and the same gas stations but once you get into the communities it's a very diverse country very different kinds of things happening at the local level and i do think that's where people feel most empowered and you know i think we we evolved to live in communities of a few hundred or a few thousand people that's where we really can understand what's going on around us in very concrete ways that don't get caught up in that problem of abstraction. So I think, you know, one one thing I think our founders did was to this idea of the Confederacy, which they actually perhaps borrowed from the the Iroquois tribes, which was also a Confederacy, which was that there's there's ways in which it makes the most sense to have really strong local government, really strong local communities. And then you do at the national level what, what really is necessary at the national level, but not a lot more than that. And I know that's been sort of a conservative talk, talking point, but it's, right. it's actually something that I found very compelling because I do think that's where, where people make the most sense of things like, you know, what does this particular ecosystem need to, to be sustained over the long term? How do we make sure it's here for our children and our grandchildren? And that, that's so different in one kind of ecosystem versus another and in one sort of relationship of a community to their ecosystem you know, where I found the biggest destruction, it was outside companies coming in and deciding that they wanted to extract the coal or do tar sands mining. It isn't the local communities that do that kind of, of you know, really massive destruction because they're not going to move on to the next place. They're going to be stuck there for for generations with the impact of that. So I, I do think there's something very compelling about, about that um, devolution of power to the local level. Yeah, and and again, uh, you were talking ecosystems. We talk about bioregions, which I'm sure you're very familiar with that term. Um, and and it's the same thing, basically. It, it's saying you know you're in a place, and it has um, particular uh, qualities to it. I don't even want to use the word resources because it's so easy with our language to drop into words that end up uh, promoting, even on a subtle level, a kind of extraction uh, or abstraction. Uh, and in fact, like you're saying, on a local level, uh, we talk about the fact that you know the, the financial crisis may not have ever happened uh, if you saw your mortgage holder in the grocery store. You know, if there was an actual relationship, your kids went to the same school. Uh, and that is the way our country was founded. And 
you know, I think most communities didn't get much larger than about 2,500 people before they spun off and started another one, which is why you see Northampton and Southampton and Easthampton and, you know, all these things, because they would split off and kind of start over in a way in what would be, and this is another word that seems to be uh, coming up more and more, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it, is instead of using the word sustainable, uh, talk about regenerative uh, talk about practices that actually uh, don't just sustain what's going on, but regenerate in a, a, a healthy way for everyone uh, concerned, really. Yes, I think that's so important, and especially because so much damage has been done, and we we really have to walk that back. So let me tell you a quick story. I was in Montana, and I was there mainly to learn about a proposed giant coal mine that they wanted to put in in southeast Montana, which which thankfully has been canceled. But at the time, this was still very much in question as, as to whether this would go through. And one of the people I talked to was a rancher who was very much opposed to that mine, and, and that's what I was there to, to talk to him about. But while we were talking, we started getting into another conversation, which is about soil. So he's a rancher, and, and many environmentalists assume that, therefore, he's on the wrong side, that you know he, he just cares about exploiting the land and for his own profit. But the truth is that this, this is somebody who cares deeply about the land. His family has been on the land for generations, and he's recently been discovering some things about how to restore soil biology and soil microbes so that the land can not only be more productive for its own cattle, for its own cattle, but can also sequester carbon, can mm. hold the water, can you know help us survive climate change. Because right. if, if soil is really well managed, it has this incredible ecosystem that we only we only barely understand. But you know, billions of microbes in a in a teaspoon of soil, they say, right. and those they form this amazing relationship that 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 turns grassland into amazingly productive land instead of this kind of, you know, what you see so often out in the West is this kind of marginal land that's just barely the side of becoming a desert. So if, if soil can, can again hold moisture and hold what rain it gets and become a sink for carbon, it can have a huge effect on soaking up some of the carbon that we've been, you know, excessively putting into the atmosphere and can become a really important part of the solution to climate change. Yeah, it's so funny. I just heard that from a farmer the other day, and I'd never heard it before. The essentially the positive uh, impacts of of soil health and and uh, the carbon that it can sequester. It's very interesting. And again, we're just we're learning so much all the time, right? And and even a rancher or a farmer who has had a relationship to the land for generations. Uh, can now be learning new things about the the science uh, because science can be our friend <laughs> and and teach us things uh, about the, the the world we've been working in for you know like I said generations um, and I'd like to talk a little bit about climate change uh, because we've had a few people on uh, that talk about the issue in different ways uh, it always seems to come back again to community in a lot of ways in terms of what various communities can do in their own backyard but lately i've been struck by well there's an obviously uh, there's an ongoing fight about the idea of climate change is it happening is it not happening which is getting harder to argue uh, with every day, uh, speaking of science, but still, it's such an issue uh, to pick a fight around if if one chooses to do that. And I've been struck by the fact that 
that you know climate change almost feels like much of politics where it's it's actually encouraged to argue about it because then you'll keep arguing and and one won't look at the underlying factors that are creating it mainly consumption and that our consumptive behaviors and our economic system actually has to be addressed at a root level if we're going to affect uh, the, uh, you know, have a positive outcome with climate change. And of course, a lot of people say it's too late anyway, uh, which is not to say don't do anything about it, uh, but it's too late. We're on a path. And the only answer is to shift consumption in a massive way as China and India and other, company, uh, other countries come online uh, and do our bidding for us in terms of manufacturing and everything else. Um, so what do you see out there in terms of that conversation around climate change? Are people accepting it, denying it? Um, I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you hear? Um, well, I, my sense is that the, the, the discussion about whether or not it's happening is kind of over. There's, I think there are a few people still under the, you know, some, some form of uh, employment rock. with the, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> with the <laughs> fossil fuel industry who may be denying it. And, and it's interesting if you look at the polling in terms of the public, I think if you use the word blame in a polling question, are humans to blame, you get a smaller response or, or a smaller number acknowledge the existence of climate change than if you don't use that term. Hmm. So I think there's a certain number of people who just can't handle, you know, accepting blame. Right. So so that aside, I think basically the, the conversation is, it, it has been settled in most people's minds about whether it's happening. And there's enormous support for things like renewable energy. I mean, yes. the, you know, people just love that idea, and they love it across the political spectrum. It's not a left-right or Democratic-Republican issue. People just love the idea of investing in renewables. And they, they recognize that there are jobs, there's economic development, it's cleaner, you know, it's less reliant on, um, you know, warfare right, to, right. to defend. I mean, it's you more, really... yeah, it's more democratic, essentially. More people can, can have their own say over their power consumption and, and how they get it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and of course, renewables is not going to do it alone. I think there's, I think there's a really an, an interesting sort of combination of questions that we need to take on. Your, your comment about uh, consumption, I think, is a really important part of it. I don't think we can actually continue to consume the world right. in the way we have and, and have a sustainable world or have anything like a peaceful world. It's just, it's just incompatible, the, the, the rate of using up the world is incompatible with with where we are now. So so that's certainly a part of it. And agriculture, as we were just talking about, is yeah. another part of it because our practices have been enormously destructive and released not only carbon but other sorts of greenhouse gases um, the way we've been practicing it. But we don't need to do it that way. We can, as we were just talking about, we can farming can sequester carbon if it's done well, if it's done organically. So there's, yeah. there's so many interesting questions in almost every case we, there would be really good reasons to do the carbon-friendly thing anyway for all sorts of other reasons, for employment, for clean water and clean air, for, for so many, for health, for, for so many reasons it would be a better idea anyway. So do most people, as you're out in the world, 
feel a base? I mean, this is the most basic question. Do they feel hopeful or do they feel that at every turn, as they try to make progress in their own personal lives, that they get thwarted in some way um, by some systemic uh, issue or failure? I, you know, are, are people basically that um, how are people feeling out there about about their own lives versus the systemic issues that that encroach on their potential happiness and hopefulness so i really sought out the people who are involved in making change and so i think that's a more optimistic bunch yeah. than than average so so this isn't you know a sort of a state of the population in general, because I'm actually really concerned. This, there's some latest research about the, the rate of death and from suicide and drug abuse and so forth going up right. among a, you know, a population. And those were not the people that I was visiting. I was visiting people who are working on making change. And what I found among them is a lot of energy. I mean, people, it's not that they're blind to the, the problems and how dire those are. They're, they're really very aware of that. But there's something about actually getting, you know, rolling up your sleeves and getting involved with other people in your own community that is just energizing and and helps to counter what could be, you know, a, a real sense of depression about the state of the world. I, I just give you one example. I, I was in Detroit. I spent a week in Detroit, which, as you know, is a city that's been through bankruptcy and has had terrible problems and, and evictions are going on and people are having their water shut off and there's enormous poverty. So a place you could imagine people would be quite discouraged. And I I was interviewing the, uh, one, one young woman, a 20-something single mom, you know, about her life and her, her activism. And I said, so so tell me about the kind of world you would you would like to be building. And she sort of paused and got thoughtful for a minute. And then she said, you know, I'm living that kind of world. Mm. I spend every day feeling grateful and, um, and joyful. Not the whole day, but every right. day, part right. of my day, I am in gratitude and joy. And I just thought, Wow, you know, this is if if you went to the if you went to the corporate media, you 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 know, she would be the stereotyped victim. Right. But she doesn't see her life that way. She sees herself as a protagonist, as somebody who is creating a different story for herself and her family and her community by how she chooses to live and by her activism. And she is just an amazingly happy person. That is encouraging. Keep telling those stories. Please <laughs> tell us more, because it is true. We see these pictures that are also true, you know, of people losing their jobs, feeling uh, there's nowhere to turn. And, and you know, you use the word story, and, and that's the bottom line, is it's the, the people whose stories we either hear or the stories that people believe themselves. And, uh, you know, far be it from me to assume I know the story of someone in Detroit, especially a single mom uh, or or in any part of the country, really, that's seeing uh, their lives shifted dramatically by forces that seemingly are out of their control. Um, so that's great. Now, again, the magazine you helped found is uh, all capital letters, yes, with an exclamation point. So that does tell me that you're looking for the yes in things as opposed to the no, uh, which is spectacular and important to be telling these stories. Uh, the book is going to be, I'm sure, really uh, encouraging to read. How do we, I, you know, I'm trying to picture a place like Detroit. Uh, and again, and probably any city in the country really now uh, that holds both 
stories and how is is it possible to connect the community of of hopefulness and action and uh, you know involvement with the community of people feeling that everything's against them and disconnected and and how how can that be knitted together that that's a big question but no, it's a really interesting question. <laughs> you know, I think part of it is that question of what stories get told, and the, the corporate media, unfortunately, has their own narrative that they believe so strongly that they don't see when something else is happening. It just is invisible to them because it doesn't fit that narrative. Right. So um, so they would not see a person like the, the young woman I interviewed. And one of the interesting things that happened in Detroit while I was there is I was meeting with a group of activists, and they, they were talking about how many things are going on in Detroit, and also how many people in Detroit don't know how much is going on that's so creative. And they said, you know, what we need is a Yes magazine for Detroit. Right. It's almost like a and regional magazine, right? Or a, Exactly, a yeah. yeah. They need their own way of telling their own stories as how they see their world and how they see what's emerging and what they think is important, because... One of one of my beliefs about about creating a different kind of world is it's not going to be a top down thing. It's not some visionary is going to come in and say, "Okay, here's here's where we go. Here's a blueprint," and everybody sort of salutes and marches down that path. Right. That's just not how things work. What happens is people change at the grassroots. People choose. They vote with their not only with their money but with their hands and with their feet, and they make a different kind of world. And I think that that process is happening. But they, don't, but most people don't know beyond what they're involved in right. about what other people are doing. So anyway, Detroit is now this group of activists is now in the process of forming a what I don't think they're going to call it Yes Magazine, but but that's sort of a magazine for the city of Detroit that will tell those stories about Detroit for Detroiters as they work to to create the kind of a city that they want. Yeah, I really think that you've touched on something critical, and I think that that's where technology can help us, where we can use uh, the Internet. I still picture, you know, somebody at a mimeograph machine, like <laughs> doing these local <laughs> things. But uh, but to use the uh, Internet as a tool for connection, real connection, and then, uh, you know, going outside of your home once you learn about these things locally and, and doing things, because activism you know, there's just something, I think, magic in in the word and, and in action. You know, when you're out there doing it, it feels good. When you're doing it with other people, uh, you see people you wouldn't expect working, you know, together on projects. Uh, but it takes the engagement at the local level. It's not going to happen any other way. Absolutely. And, and I think that's where uh, mayors in particular, and I'd, I'd love to hear if you got to talk to any elected officials as well, uh, you know, mayors probably have the most, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest uh, framework or the, the, the groundwork to get something done on a scale in a way that, that is necessary and that nobody else really can work at. I think that's right. And, I, and just to your earlier point, I think the, um, the isolation is where people go into despair. Right. Once they, once they, and there, there's the there's the um, trap of technology is if you spend too much time by a screen and not with actual other human beings, I think you can also float into despair. Absolutely. But yeah, in terms of the mayors, I didn't. I've been working on getting an interview with Mayor Baraka from uh, Newark, and I didn't get the interview yet. I'm still trying, but I did spend time with some of his his um, officials, and had a chance to to tour. 
um, a part of Newark that that he has designated as a place where he's putting extra resources in order to see some real change. Some some neighborhoods that have had some long-term blight and de- you know economic devastation, and uh, as you may know, he was he was elected just two years ago, so or right. took office just two years ago, so he hasn't had a lot of chance to do a lot in those neighborhoods. But the idea is to to give those neighborhoods a chance to to sort of pick themselves up off the off the bottom, and um, and one of the things that they've done quickly is to get uh, to commission local artists to paint murals in some of these parts of town that have been so devastated. So I had a chance to see some of them, and to see the kind of um, the kind of value on beauty and on the uh, cultural self-respect on bringing the black culture into um, it, sort of form it, f- framing it as as a beautiful part of what makes Detroit so special. Because so often when a city is we're, is in the process of of revitalization, the community, the poor communities, the communities of color get pushed out because they can no longer afford the higher rents that a an improving part of the city will will demand. And so he's really working on how do how do we have those kinds of revitalization without displacement? Right. I think that's just an amazingly interesting question. It's actually one that uh, that Bernie Sanders worked on very successfully in Burlington, Vermont. Yeah, and and it is it's interesting you mentioned murals because we have that happening right here in uh, Kingston. They have an organization called O Positive, and part of its work is uh, putting murals on buildings, and they are beautiful and they make a difference. People do see themselves reflected in artwork. I mean, that's always been the case with culture. And of course, when you see those things marginalized in our schools, then they become marginalized in our minds. And uh, like everything else, uh, just sort of we forget, but then we can remember very quickly. I mean, I think that's the one thing about community and people coming together is uh, you can spark those synapses pretty quickly in people and, and get people involved again. Uh, which is great to see. And one of the other underlying things that I don't quite know how to get around or through or anything else is this idea of jobs. And the conversation always goes to more jobs. We need jobs. How do we get jobs? And I'm not sure how we lift off the economic framing essentially of everything, because that does seem, I mean, yes, we've got to pay the rent, we've got to put food on the table, but we, there has been a fabric woven over the last hundred years or so uh, to where y- you can't think outside of the economy. Um, and, you know, you've written about this, you've heard stories about this, you've, you know, there's been so much, uh, certainly David Corton, you know, this is one of the core uh, the thoughts of his at, what do we do? How how do we remove ourselves from a web that seems to be, you know, inextricably linked even, you know, to happiness ultimately, which I know and you know because you've certainly written about it and talked about it. Um, happiness and money are certainly not connected, but surviving and money uh, is. And, and that wasn't true 150 years ago necessarily. So help <laughs> okay <laughs> talk to so me <laughs> i think yeah i think you know survival and thriving both you know both are 
part of the ca- you know the cash economy is important and the non-cash economy is important. And I think what you're referring to is that the cash economy has kind of col- colonized everything about our lives. Exactly. So we have to have cash to do anything. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it didn't used to be that way. Um, people just did for themselves and did for each other, and they did it in a way that that um, could include exchanges. So you didn't have to, you know, do every single thing you needed for yourself, but right. you you did an awful lot in 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 extended families in your neighborhood in your community, right? Um, in an informal economy, which was a lot more forgiving and a lot and had a lot more love built into it and a lot more creativity built into it, right? So if the cash economy colonizes everything, so you can't get care for your child without cash. You can't get, you know, you can't restore your health without cash. You can't get decent food or any food without cash. You know, if if all of those things require cash, then, you know, then of course you have to have jobs because how else are you going to be able to get your basic necessities? Right. I remember I interviewed, you know, some years ago I interviewed a, a guy from, um, uh, an indigenous man from the Amazon um, who was in the United States trying to uh, advocate to get the oil companies to leave his community alone, <clears throat> basically. So I was sort of exploring with him, well, what kind of economy do you have and do you want? Because there's such a, you know, there's this myth that everybody in the world hopes that big investment and big corporations will come in and create jobs. And I said, so how do, how do you do it? Right. Like, if you wanted a house, what would you do? You know, because that's where we, we, in the West, we have to borrow money. We have to be in mortgages that go for 30 years, and we right. have to have a job to pay the mortgage. You know, so how do you do it? And he said, well, first thing you do is you plant this certain kind of a plant, and when it matures, you ferment it and make this really great alcohol. And then you have a party. You call all your friends together, and you say, let's build a house. Right. You, you build a house in one day. You have a great party because you have all that alcohol, and you're done. Right. Start building after. I start yeah. the drinking after the <laughs> the building. <laughs> right, that's true. Right, but it's part of the reward, you know. It's right. Like yeah. So, so there's this whole system in place, right? You, you, if you start off, your investment is growing the the crop in the first place. Right. But all the way along the way, it's sustainable, but it's also builds a community because all those people will come together to make something happen, and they'll have a marvelous time doing it, and then they'll have a party to celebrate what they did, and there's no mortgage. <laughs> right, and then they'll go do it for somebody else. And, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yep. And then they'll have a, an acre or so of land in the, the backyard, if there's such a word, um, and and uh, grow some food, and grow some food for their, you know, their neighbors, and they grow other food for them, and guess what? Nobody gets strawberries in December, but that's okay. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Yeah, in fact, one of the places I visited was Appalachia. I spent quite a bit of time there and talked to a guy who's trying to promote people growing more of their own food, which they used to do in some of those poor communities. It used to be a big part of people's livelihood was to grow their own gardens. Um, and then when the coal industry came in, a lot of people felt like it was it, it indicated that they were poor if they had their own garden, so they should drop it. Right. So he's trying to bring that back because Kentucky and has some of the worst obesity along with malnutrition in the country. Um, but anyway, one of the things he found, he's trying to get the local economy going. So he's hoping people will grow food and then sell it at the local farmer's market. But what actually happens is a lot of people grow food and they start giving it away right. to their that... family and their friends. And so a different sort of economy gets going. It's one where people have something they can offer to one another and they're also re-knitting community and getting away from isolation 
and getting all that really healthy food and getting self-respect because they have something important and, and wonderful that they can share with other people. So there's a different kind of an economy that gets going when people are sharing something as basic as healthy food that they grew. Right. Which, again, you know, you say is basic, which it is, of course, but it's critical. I mean, our machines are running every day, meaning us, our bodies, uh, on what we put in it. And and I would also imagine, because I found this myself uh, from personal experience, once I moved onto a farm and ate food from the land I lived on, uh, qualitative changes happened in in me that I, I couldn't quantify. I couldn't tell you exactly what it was, but it changed aspects of my person uh, because it was healthy and it was local. And uh, so I'm imagining these people who are once again, because again, we all grew our food at some point. Um, once they're getting that sensation again, both in the act of it and of course the results of it, they're probably changing their their chemistry essentially in ways that again have these qualitative things to them uh, that then promote even more community and and better behavior in all sorts of ways yeah i think that's so important food is food is connected to everything you know it's connected right. to our sense of place it's connected to our sense of community because we we so often share food in, in all sorts of community gatherings. It's connected to our sense of culture and where we come from and family and health. And, you know, so as you say, what our bodies are built out of and what our, it, it, it affects our day-to-day -day sense of well-being if we're eating well or if we're eating a bunch of sugar and processed foods. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazingly interesting a part of our society. So if we're uh, figuring out how to build houses with our neighbors by throwing a party, and which is, of course, barn raising as well, and we're starting to grow our own, own food and, and sharing that with our neighbors and realizing that we don't need the latest whatever, um, you know, to, to be cool or, or to have some kind of social standing, um, things are starting to look pretty good. Everybody's starting to, to live and, and be housed. And uh, then, of course, there's education to talk about in terms of how we educate our kids and, and what's important for education. You, you look at the, uh, you know, how our current system was framed in the middle 19th century, and you realize it was about division of labor and paying attention and showing up on time and all these things that had little to do with actual education. Um, so, and, and I'm curious, actually, what, uh, if you had a chance to interface with a lot of kids on your tour, and I'm sure you did, um, and what that felt like, because we see in this political cycle, a lot of young energy around words that we would never say, uh, you know, 30 years ago, like socialism and all that, you know, that those things have shifted and, and there's a lot of young people, uh, very excited about change and, and rapid change, not just incremental change, which is great. But at the same time, I have a very close relative um, who, you know, you learn a lot about people when you look at what they like on Instagram. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, I have a young relative who uh, is part of the Young Conservatives Instagram feed. Uh, it's called Young Cons for short, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but the things <laughs> other young people are saying and doing is 
is striking in terms of the difference from what you see at, for instance, the Sanders rally. So what did you see out there in terms of younger people? And and I also mean like really young people, like, uh, you know, preteens even or teenagers, that kind of thing. Um, well, I didn't spend a lot of time with really young people. I did visit a, a wonderful school in Wisconsin that was created by a high school, I think he was a sophomore at the time, who was, who was not happy with his schooling situation. He'd been to a Waldorf school as a child, and then he went into the public high school, I think it was, and just felt like this wasn't for him. So he and his parents and other kids and parents created their own school and uh, some years later, he's now the head of the school, no, no longer a teenager, but it still has that same ethic of um, having parents and, teach, and uh, teachers and students working collaboratively to decide what the school is all about. Right. And one of the things I loved about their, how they start off their year is they have the kids, they take the kids some 20 or 30 miles away from the school and have them backpack with, with teachers, of course, mm-hmm. backpack back to the school. So they get to see the place that they live, you know, the farmland and the hills and the towns and so forth. They get to see it in a whole different way than, than they've seen it before. So again, that, that deep connection to place. Right. Another place I visited was the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, where I visited the Student Sustainable Farm. So this is, a, you know, University of Illinois is, is of course, right in the middle of, of agricultural re- territory, and, and there's yep. a big ag school there. So they're really used to the corporate farming methodology, but here they also have this sustainable farm right in the midst of this. It's growing everything organically. And what I understood from, from talking to the people who run it is that the school realized that to, in order to attract students, they had to show that they were going to have something about sustainability in there. They weren't going to be able to attract wow. students with only a corporate model. So I found that very encouraging. That's encouraging for sure. Yeah, Archer Daniels Midland is right there in Decatur, I think. So, yeah, it's a it's a different kind of sensibility uh, surrounding that, which, which is fantastic. And, again, kids – have I mean we've seen great strides in various social issues and that sort of thing because younger people and and I think the next phase of course is going to be when uh, whites are in a minority basically then we're going to start to really see shifts in certain things that I don't think will happen until then I mean this country was built as a commercial enterprise by white men and there's just there there's no way around that fact and the history of that and what we're seeing is the results of it i think um but but slowly changing now because of course again the the demographics are changing i think communication is changing and i think people really are recognizing that it's going to be in community where these things happen where we get our humanity back essentially um it it's interesting as you you had mentioned uh, referencing, and I could tell you put quotes around it in terms of poor people. Uh, and that's what, you know, the, the concept of a poor person has been created uh, in a lot of ways. And I think created again over the last 100 or 200 years. And, um, you know, our economy really wasn't that and didn't create uh, poor people. And, and I get a lot of pushback, or at least some, saying, well, you know, but capitalism is the best system and markets are the best way. And if we just give it some time and look how great, you know, America is compared to Bangladesh or something. And it's just, it's it's fascinating that people want to use the yardstick 
uh, of the framing we've had to tell us where we're going. And, and I, it's, it's just not, eventually it's not going to work anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think that's one of, one of the challenges when we were talking about building up your, your life in a non-cash economy is that so much of the things that we need, we, we are forced to intersect with the cash economy. If we want land to build that house, we probably will have to pay for it with actual cash, and we'll probably, you know, it, it's subject to speculative inflation. So it, it could end up being quite expensive to buy a piece of land, you know, or or to, uh, you know, to get to get access to the things that we we want, like healthcare and and food. You know, for, for most of us, we still have to do that. And and now there's this trend of privatizing water. Right. So I think we we really need to resist some of that privatization and really look at how do how do we put these basic necessities in back into the commons, back into the public domain where they belong. Well, yeah, and there's the the, the idea of ownership, property versus the commons, and and what is a uh, you know a, a public access should just be there for so many things, including a lot of utilities and things. I mean, it's really. Uh, it's it's so it it just boggles the mind how we have been shaped, and this gets to kind of uh, memes versus genes, and the idea that that our culture has moved much faster from the framing we've created as opposed to our genetic disposition and how quickly we can get to these new ideas. Uh, because, you know, people will say, oh, we've always been this way and blah, blah, you know, and it, it's a it's a poor excuse because we aren't that anymore. We have the opportunity now to see each other, uh, to experience things in different ways. And yet we're still, you know, we're still Neolithic <laughs> in so many ways. But our culture has told us we need to be selfish and that we actually are and that we need to own things and control things and get more because we might run out. And that's just all playing to fear, essentially, which is mm-hmm. a, very old uh, behavioral characteristic that, um, you know, we're not going to get eaten anymore uh, by a lion. So we can relax a little bit, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, we've just got uh, we've got a few more minutes here. And uh, first of all, I, I uh, every little insight and story that comes from your trip, I think, is so valuable. So uh, if there's more thoughts uh, even uh, since you've been back, you've written about what happened in North Dakota with the um, the tribe uh, beating back fracking. I mean, you've 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 seen so many things and people's behavior so antithetical. I think to what we read, in which is the point of the magazine, really, because we, we see so many things in the media that that aren't painting the picture that is actually out there. Um, so, can you tell us a couple more stories? <laughs> Oh sure. Um, well, how about if I tell that one about the fracking? Cause, great. Uh, yeah, New York that's State, a great You have one. a lot of those issues. Yep. So I visited uh, two different reservations in in North Dakota. The first one is Fort Berthold. It's where there's three confederated tribes have their reservation, and it's a place where fracking and uh, other oil extraction boomed uh, as part of the back and oil shale extraction quite quite early on. So this. The tribes, you know, saw that this was a big economic development opportunity. There'd be millions of dollars coming in, all sorts of jobs. So they they went for it, and um, you know, you can see the evidence everywhere. There's flares everywhere you look. There's oil wells in people's yards. Um, there's huge amount of money coming through. There's these what they call man camps, which are these yes. large, very fast growing developments for for housing the oil workers. 
there's been, you know, of course, a, a bit of a bust in this, but this, but it's still quite um, dominant in this in this reservation. And I interviewed a young woman. Her name is Prairie Rose Seminole, who's a, a tribal member and someone who cares deeply about um, health and about the amount of abuse going on. And, and she was describing how how devastated the, the community has been by the fracking. Um, the health effects of having all that pollution because they're flaring off all this natural gas. So it's just sort of this constant um, source of air pollution. The the crime that's come with all of these oil workers with so much money to spend. So the drug, the drug trafficking, the human trafficking, prostitution, right. um, the the young people in the tribe not feeling safe, the the culture being kind of overwhelmed with with all of this outside influence and then the money in the tribe itself and how corrupting that is to have some tribal members who have huge now wealth and others who don't. So it's just stirred up all kinds of issues. And then they thought that they were going to, you know, that that during the boom, they would be making so much money would help to to tie them over when the boom went bust. But so much of the money has gone to law enforcement and to building up the infrastructure, you know, to rebuilding the infrastructure once the trucks ruin the the highways and so forth, that that it's really unclear how much they're going to end up with. So that was Fort Berthold. And so then I went to another reservation, which is, you know, a few hours away called the Turtle Mountain Reservation and talked to a couple of women there and... um, and there, the, an elder in the tribe had called together the women who are who are responsible in their tradition for the quality of the water, and she had asked them to look at this question of fracking because it was going to be coming to Turtle Mountain, you know, if, if things were were to continue as they had been. And they started looking at what fracking does to a community in all those ways we just talked about, and and especially what it would do to their sources of water. And they just got very alarmed and brought it to the tribal council and said, you know, we, we do not want this in our community and we would like the tribal council to act. So they did. Within a few weeks, the tribal council, based on their research, passed unanimously passed a resolution banning fracking on the reservation just in time before the uh, BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, had been prepared to issue leases for oil and gas drilling on their, on their land. Wow. And we're talking so a, millions and millions of dollars coming into the community, right? I mean, that's, that's right. Yeah, they they yeah. left that on the table. Yeah, they felt it was so much more important that they have water for generations to come and a quality of life for generations to come. Right. So when I was there, I also interviewed the tribal chairman and said, you know, how how did how was it for you politically to to say no to all right. that money? And he said, oh, it was easy. You know, we we can see that that water is sacred and money is not. And when we look at other places that have made another decision, we don't see a lot of happy people. <laughs> right, right. That's what's amazing. And and I've been to Fort Berthold, but before the fracking boom. So I, I saw it when it was, you know, what it had been for probably thousands of years. And it's incredible how fast the infrastructure comes in and, and then how volatile it is, both as it's happening, but then also when there's a bust, it just hollows out the place. And uh, so, I mean, that is a tremendously encouraging story. Uh, what I was struck with as you were describing what was going on uh, in Fort Berthold in particular, it reminds me of the stories I had heard in, I think it's mostly the 18th century, maybe even 17th, around the beaver pelts and the extraction, essentially, of Europeans coming and and wiping out 
uh, the beaver population. And of course, the native people seeing this as uh, getting supplies they never had before. And, and people were intermediaries on the native side because they were essentially making it wasn't money, but they were uh, getting goods they never had. And it's just the same thing, frankly, because you get the same corruption, you get the same uh, bad side effects. And so I do wonder if we'll ever really learn uh, that these cycles, they may look different on the surface, but they are they have the same quality about them. And it's, it's always somebody coming in from the outside, uh, taking advantage, and, and people on the inside saying, making the choice or not of buying into uh, what somebody else is selling. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. I think it is a, a long history of sort of colonialism and extraction going together. And I guess, you know, the the, the hope I have is that, that indigenous communities figure it out. You know, they see... Right. And I don't think that's because they they have some kind of magical um, connection to wisdom that other people don't have. I think what it comes from is from having stayed in place long enough to understand what kind of mistakes they, you can afford to make and what kind of mistakes you can't afford to make, and then passing down that knowledge to the next generation. Absolutely. That is it. And that's the hope we all have in each of our communities. I mean, whether it's uh, I've lived in Milwaukee for many years, and there are people that have been there for 150 years, you know, in, in their families, and they understand certain things that others don't. And Certainly in smaller communities where you do see the same people every day, that's the real connection and the land that we're on. Uh, and that is, uh, frankly, and this is uh, some theory that listeners have heard me say before, but I absolutely stand by it. That is the hope for China, is that actually the Chinese have been where they've been for thousands and thousands of years. That is the largest tribe in the world in a lot of ways, and in fact have a lot of indigenous qualities that colonialism and consumption and the current, uh, you know, systemic behavior is moving in to do exactly what was done uh, in various parts of the world over the past really 500 years. And it's distressing, but the, the hope is that, that the small communities, wherever they are in the world, uh, will start to uh, wake up and look around and realize that, that the future starts with them, you know, with, with the, the people that are connected to the earth and, and each other. Yes, I totally agree with you. And, and I think that also applies in cities, you know, as we were talking about earlier, because cities that, that have that kind of sense of, especially neighborhood, I think can right. have also have that, that deep sense of connection to place. Yeah, exactly. I moved to New York City uh, in 2005, and the first thing I noticed was in about every three to five block radius, you had a little town. <laughs> Essentially, you had the cleaners, right. you had the movies, you had, you had everything. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for being on the show with us. Um, we could, I think, just go on and on. And if we were in a living room together, we would. I'm sure of it. <laughs> uh, and hopefully we will be at some point because um, there's a lot to talk about. And congratulations on everything, on the work of Yes, on on the 12,000 miles you put on your car <laughs> and, and <laughs> what you learned because of it. And uh, I look forward to talking again in the future. That's Sarah Van Gelder, the co-founder and editor-at-large for Yes! Magazine. Find out more about her and about them, yesmagazine.org. That's it for What's Next. For more shows, go to wherever fine podcasts are found. 
The music for the show is original and available at peterbuffett.com. I'm Jimmy Buff. See you next time.